Today we're talking about a fantastic new film called Girls, 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 which bucks tired movie stereotypes in an exhilarating fashion. Here's the film's director, Ali Hapasalo. Our films seem to basically say to young women, you are in danger all the time and you have to negotiate how you behave, what you wear, where you go, how you act constantly. Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. I'm going to get that gun of mine and I'm going to change you from a rooster to a hen with one shot. Some people call me a freak. I hate that word. I don't believe in it. Better yet, I don't believe in labels. You know, I think you're the only girl in the world that can stand on a stage with a spotlight in her eye and still see a diamond inside a man's pocket. Because I'm up at five every morning working my ass off. Does someone want to just tell me to my face you're never going to give me the scores I deserve? Hello and welcome to Girls on Film. I'm your host, Anna Smith. And today's episode was recorded in front of a live audience at the Curzon Bloomsbury on September the 26th, 2022, after a special preview screening of Girls, 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 known in some parts of the world as Girl Picture. The film is set in Finland over three consecutive Fridays and follows the close friendship between two teenage girls who work together in a smoothie store by day and party by night. While Mimi falls for a figure skater called Emma, Ronko hopes to meet a guy who can give her pleasure. Muistat silloin lapsena, kun sä kuivarukkasit ekaa kertaa tyynyyn. Ja sit sä olit silleen, että mitä helvettiä, että onks tää se, mistä kaikki puhuu. Mä vaan pelkään, että mä ikin tunnesta, mitä kaikki muut tuntee. Mitä se on? Haluu olla niin lähellä jotain ihmistä, et ees riitä, et ihot koskettaa, et... Do you wanna mango with me? Uh... I talked to director Ali Hapasalo about the film. Congratulations again. Thank you. Oh, I, I, I hear some laughter there. feel people enjoying that film <laughs> as much as I did. You know, having seen that and enjoyed it so much, I mean, my first question is, where did it come from? Because it's two great female writers. But tell me how you got involved with them and what kind of process you had bringing it to the screen. Sure. Uh, Ilona and Daniela contacted me in 2014. Uh, when I was actually in the middle of writing the screenplay for my first feature. And they had a treatment for this film, so they didn't have a script, but they had a clear idea of what type of film they wanted to do. And you could already tell from the treatment that they were treating adolescent life in a very fresh way. And that was the initial sort of interest that I had. But also I was really struggling with the size and scope with my first feature. It was an adaptation of a Finnish book and there was way too much material for the film (laughs) and it was a big struggle. I knew that the next film I made, I wanted to make something that was small in plot, sort of on the surface you could look at this and say it's a very small film but then that it would have enough time to cinematically study the characters and have depth that way so this obviously hit the spot in that and I also really knew that I wanted to um, focus on female driven stories my first feature was also a female driven story Nobody understood it at the time, though, because it came out before Me Too. And post Me Too, any film that featured a female lead was considered a feminist film. But nobody thought my first feature was, which I thought that it was a feminist film, but nobody wrote ever that it was a feminist film. But What was the <laughs> was, name of your first feature? It's called Love and Fury in English. 
It's, you know, you say it's a small story, this, but it's a very impactful story. And in case people here don't know, not only did it win the Sundance Audience Award, but it's also been selected by Finland to compete at the Oscars in the international feature category, which is Yay. fantastic. And I, for one, you know, at Girls on Film, I think that's a lot to celebrate because we don't often see stories by women about women in that category, right? It's often a certain kind of film. How does that feel? Well, that is the number one thing that feels so great about the quote-unquote success of this film, which we have witnessed now since Sundance, um, is that it has gotten this validation that this topic um, and this size of um, a female story is worthy is enough for a feature film. Female filmmakers often hear from financiers that their stories are simply not interesting enough or big enough or important enough. And we, like I said, we started this in 2014. Uh, It took us three years to find a producer alone. We even, we sent it to female producers specifically because we thought that they would get it. But the first feedback we got was, I don't understand what's special about the story. Then in 2016, Me Too happened, and I'm not saying that Me Too saved this film or changed everything, but it did change the conversation around whose stories we're telling and who gets to tell them. And post Me Too, in a financer meeting, you can't say anymore to a female filmmaker that their story is too small, because then they will ask back why. And we've all had to look at our bias And when I say all, I don't exclude myself from that. We had a lot of bias in the writing process that we had to get rid of. And that was another interesting process for us. But basically, you know, um, this validation has come only much later. It came from obviously getting greenlit and getting the film made. But then to have someone like Sundance, someone like it's a person, but some really important entity like Sundance validate the film and say, this is a legit topic. It's totally enough to study three girls on three consecutive Fridays and look at their emotions and their lives. Men's stories about this, you know, have always been interesting. Men's existential crisis is always interesting. But (laughs) (laughs) that has been the number one thing that I'm very, very happy about. Well, you should be very proud. And I'm very happy about it too, as you know, because Girls on Film celebrates exactly that. And I'm always trying to check my own bias as well. Uh, and on the podcast, it's been a journey and I've had conversations that have helped me to do that. Um, but would you like to elaborate a bit more about when you were referring to that, saying that in the writing processes that you were checking your bias? There's so many preconceived like ideas that we are conditioned to that we just don't understand that we're thinking this way. Um, one example was that um, conversation about what kind of danger these girls get into you know in the film the girls don't get into any danger I don't know if you thought about it when you saw it but um, a lot of the feedback I get is that when people have watched the film they have been so conditioned to expect the terrible thing to happen that they can't have relaxed because they're constantly waiting for it to happen and then they're like nothing bad happens I mean obviously bad things happen emotionally between the girls and everything and you know Mimi is terrible to Emma and everything but you know like there are no outside threats but this was not always the case Um, when we were writing the film for a long time there was a scene with this really sleazy guy that Emma and Mimi get into a dangerous situation with they escape it and it's kind of a triumphant experience that they share a bond because they got you know rid of the guy together and everything and it was dramaturgically kind of on point but at some point we're like wait isn't this exactly what every film about adolescent girls does if don't if girls don't get murdered or raped 
they get at least nearly raped. They nearly escape death or other dangers, or at least they are warned this way. Our films seem to basically say to young women, you are in danger all the time, and you have to negotiate how you behave, what you wear, where you go, how you act constantly. And we just basically said, why are we enforcing this by having this scene here? We don't have to do that. And my thinking was that people will say, oh, world doesn't exist the way you have it on screen if you don't have like sexual harassment or something like that. So what? In this film, there isn't that. These girls are free of danger. They are taking center stage. Their sexual search is not defined by anybody, not parents, school teachers, boyfriends, men, anybody, you know, they just get to explore it. And like once it's on the big screen, there's a chance, maybe, that when there's more of that on the big screen, it doesn't have to be enforced in our minds also all the time, there and then in the world. Exactly right. Amen to that. Lead by example, you know, and, and as, as we often say in the podcast, if she can see it, she can be it. And you have these great examples of young women just supporting each other as well. And I love that they're, they're very complex characters and Mimi does some things which, is, as you say, you know, are not great, but perhaps we've all been on both sides of that in relationships and it's wonderful to explore, but also to see people being supportive and apologetic. Ainakin mä oon rehellinen itselleni. Ja ihan sama, mitä se vaikuttaa muihin. Ainakaan mä en käytä sua hyväkseni johonkin vittu ekaan kapinaan elämässäni. Another thing that struck me um, was that often it's a coming out story in queer love stories, um, especially at that age group. Why did you decide not to really deal with that? That's, to be perfectly honest, that's another conversation we had in the writing process, whether we should have an element of coming out or not. Luckily, we decided not to, because um, whereas I don't want to undermine coming out stories and the importance of those, and I'm acutely aware of the fact that in many places of the world, coming out is not a simple thing at all, but it's the same thing as before. If we're only looking at queer relationships as something that has to be dealt with, that is a terrible, traumatic thing, that you are sort of in terrible trouble before you can come out and, and, and be faced with the world, or a thing that always is through, seen through the world's eyes, you know, that it's, an, it's the other people who get to define you or your sexuality, or you're always worried about other people's perception, then we are constantly saying that being queer is a troublesome, terrible problem to deal with for the queer people, even the films that are trying to be positive about it, you know? So that's another reinforcing of a, of a terrible stereotype. And also heterosexual people enjoy such an enormous privilege of never being asked about their sexuality. Why not have these girls have the same privilege? Who cares? They're human beings in love, not like labels of gender in love. And another refreshing thing, which I'm sure you're expecting me to ask you about is that um you know the character who perhaps is not sure if she does have sexual feelings or or at least she's um you know received ideas from the media or other people about how she should be feeling what kind of desire she should be feeling whether you call it asexual or what whatever what kind of conversations did you have about that what you just said was the main conversation whether we should label it or not and um we kind of knew very early on that we didn't want to label it every 
script commentator always asked us, wait, is she asexual or is she not? Or like, can we make that clear? Or can we not, you know? Should I have not labeled it? Sorry, I feel bad now. <laughs> <laughs> no, you did exactly right. Because those are the questions, we don't say the word asexual in the film, but certainly everybody understands that that's the question she's asking herself. Basically, to me, the whole journey that she has, has to do with the, incompleteness and the idea that you don't need to know. I mean, she's only 17. In the end of the the journey, her happy ending is that she can say to that lovely boy at the foosball table. Oh, give me a piece. Nonne. She doesn't know what she likes. And I think that's the resolution there. The resolution isn't whether... She is or isn't asexual. Um, and that was very important. And actually, that's that's a storyline that very many young people approach us after um, screenings and say that that's been extremely important to them because this is a representation almost non-existent in cinema at all. It's really true when you think about it, how few films, especially of that age group, deal with that. So, well done. Have you had any other kind of encouraging feedback from young people who've seen this film? Or old people? Yeah. Somewhere in between. We have. um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, We have received a lot of feedback, which has been really lovely. Um, We, from all over the world, we get messages, whether it's in uh, public little um, audience reviews or private messages to us, we get very often the comment that people feel seen um, in this, and they they feel that they have seen themselves on the big screen, and many have said it's been their first time they really feel that they've identified with the character on the big screen. That of course makes us really happy that this happens um, across the board. It also makes me tremendously angry at times. Like I got this beautiful letter from a woman living in Canada. She's 51 and she said that she really wished that she had this um, movie growing up um, in Australia as, a, as an adolescent and she felt that she saw herself in this film and, and she was just so happy and she so eloquently described the passion between the two girls um, in the film and she really had gotten it and lived through it. And it was the loveliest letter, but also, how can you be 51 in 2022 and say that this was the first film that you really could see yourself on the big screen? So it's a very angry happiness, you know, with the feedback. Sadly, all too easily, I think. And that's, yeah, what we're trying to push forward on Girls on Film, because they just aren't enough. Um, and you've just done it in a beautiful, accessible fashion as well. So hopefully it's, it's reaching people who might not have seen these kinds of films before. I'm glad you say aren't enough because I also, I've, I talk a lot, a lot about this film and often it's depicted as this like first film right. with, you know, girls are now coming to the big screen and like I'm the first female director to talk about female desire, young girls. <laughs> it's of course not true. That's like a terrible thing if I try to claim that you know like there's a, the, your podcast is a wonderful library of proof of how there's over 120 episodes of female-led films and female uh, stories of female characters but somehow because maybe they haven't yet gained the <clears throat> maybe yet they haven't gained the same status in the film canon as as the other genders films um, we don't somehow think about it and of course like you said there aren't enough yet 
they're, they're out there. We have to look for those films. Exactly. And, and if you're lucky enough to be reaching mainstream audiences as you are with this film, a lot of them simply won't be aware of it. So just tell them to listen to Girls on Film and then job done, as you suggest. I'm interested to know what, I mean, you're doing a lot of things differently in this film, as we've established, which is amazing. But actually, you know, in the topic of what we were just saying, are there any films, old or new, that have influenced you or that came into the conversation when you were talking with your writers and crew? Maybe number one reference film was this beautiful documentary film that I highly recommend to everyone. It's an American film called All This Panic about real teenage girls uh, growing up in Brooklyn. It came out in 2015, I believe, directed by Jenny Gage. It follows the girls a much longer time, I I believe, through high school into college. Um, And it had this beautiful urgency. I don't want to age. I think that's the scariest thing in the entire world. It took a long time for it to even occur to me that I could like girls. I'm an adult. You're not an adult. You're a young adult. And just there's so much like this beautiful, fragile but strong wisdom in these adolescent girls. You know, girls are always looked down to, but if if you actually listen to them and if you actually look at them, not just like look at them, but hear what they have to say, um, there's so much there. Um, They are just these beautiful characters. And so that film really influenced us and also became a really big aesthetic reference. I really wanted our film to feel as realistic as almost documentary. Um, not naturalistic, you know, like we still wanted it to have a very cinematic look. But I didn't want it to feel like an adult's point of view of adolescent life or, you know, like a 44-year-old woman's nostalgic trip to teenage years or oof, like us trying to be cool, like, you know, adolescent, cool, like teenage film. I just really wanted it to be very character-driven, just very realistic, very relevant story of these girls. And uh, other reference films for that became, for example, Call Me By Your Name, one of my favorite films from recent years. I think it's a beautiful, beautiful depiction of first love and especially of the kind of physical sensations that you have with first love, even pain, because the love is so strong that it's painful. That was uh, another big reference. Muscles are firm. Not a straight body in these statues. They're all curved. Sometimes impossibly curved. And so nonchalant, hence their ageless ambiguity, as if they're daring you to desire them. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, Booksmart came to my mind in some ways as well. Uh, I don't know if you sort of see that yourself. I know it was probably in the works around the same time. Um, but two films that I love equally, I have to say. Um, but calling my name is interesting. We've talked about that on the pod before, if people want to go back episode 10 if my memory serves me correctly um we're going to cut to the audience soon but i wanted to ask a bit about your cast because i haven't actually asked yet and what a trio of tremendous performances how did you get them together i took casting really slowly on purpose because i knew that this film lives and dies with the cast um and i really wanted to get it right so it took me three months just to find them and i mean of course i wasn't working on casting every day but i really needed time to think Um, And I started casting the week that COVID hit Finland. So the first round had to be self-tapes, which don't really give you much, I think. They can just show if people understood the scene that they were sent and 
if they can be natural in front of the camera, but it's not acting with anybody. It's just acting with your cell phone and that's terrible. But then as soon as we could start to do proper casting, I had auditions with um, the girls and and they did a lot of scenes. And in the end, it was a really easy choice because they were just so great. But the difficulty was casting a trio was different than casting two leads, for example, because of course you're always casting people together, not just as individuals. But with this one, I noticed that very quickly, the second you took one of the three out of it, everything else changed too. So you couldn't just take one out and put one in and then have that be a little bit different, but everything fell apart. So it was a really interesting puzzle. You really had to find the the perfect band that would play perfectly together. And then equally important was our rehearsal process, which was also a three-month process. We rehearsed everything from how friends are together to key scenes, of course. You know, uh, one of them had never acted on camera. Only one of them is trained and one of them is a natural talent from uh, three generations of acting Can you family. tell us which is which? <laughs> uh, Rönke, the curly-haired girl who goes on the quest for pleasure, does her first role ever. Wow, she's fantastic. She's a natural yeah. talent, yeah. She's she's a performer. She's done ballet and musical theater, but she had never done a camera role. Linda plays uh, Emma, the ice skater. Um, she's a trained actor. She just graduated right after the shoot. Amu Milanov, who plays Mimi, um, she's just a natural born star. I, I think she's won awards already for this role, and she comes from three generations of actors and directors in her family and she's a remarkable star I think she's so charismatic isn't she, she I mean, they is. all are in their own way but yeah thank you for sharing that it's really interesting to know I think it's time for some audience questions do we have uh, yes one right up there please yes it's not so much of a question but one of the things that moved me a lot was at the beginning of the film when you start off with the school hockey match in the gym and the childish behavior And then the whole way through this conflict between being a child and being very sexual at the same time. And then it really moved me at the end um, when she wanted her mum. And I just thought that was really wonderful and wondered how conscious you were of that that theme um, or whether it just emerged. Thank you. That was uh, uh, Mimi's biggest theme, um, for sure. Adolescent life or like the teenage as as a time period, I call it liminal age because you are constantly fluctuating between childhood and adulthood. In just one instance, you go from uh, being the mature, independent woman who lives by herself and earns her own money at the smoothie stand to wanting to just be caressed by your mom and say that I miss you. That was a, a really big thing and, and not so easy always to balance because the mom character is also a very difficult one. You know, she has like two scenes and she has to be a fully fleshed out mom. We need to understand why she's distant to Mimi. There's people who still think that she's a monster, even if I've made her quite soft, I think. And I think it's quite understandable why she's doing what she's doing. But it's just heartbreaking, of course, that there is a disconnect between the two. But yeah, that was her her big storyline. Do we have, uh, yes, one right up there, please. Yes. So you say you spend a long time in the casting and I've understood a bit from what you've said today about yourself. But what I'm keen to know is what is it about you that um, managed to bring out these 
uh, rich and truthful and low-key performances in these uh, actresses? I'm a very collaborative director, and I think that's completely the key here. The first thing I said to the, the cast, don't come in and just do the text and do a good job, be a good girl and go home, you know. Challenge the text, challenge me, challenge the character, take ownership of the character you're playing. We're doing this together and we all have to believe and make the same film together. And I spent a lot of time building the trust with them, um, not just so that they could trust me, who's twice their age and in a place of authority, which I also tried to strip down, uh, but also the trust amongst themselves. They have to um, play lovers and friends uh, who really trust each other. So the trust has to be real. And then there's a lot of intimacy in this film. So that has to look easy also. Because my, in my statement, it well, for Anka's story, it's not always easy. She, of course, stumbles with her quest uh, for pleasure. But for Emma and Mimi, I wanted it to be very genuine and very easy. And that we rehearsed in a very specific process with intimacy coordinator Pia Rickman, who had wonderful techniques for that also. It was a very extensive process of not just rehearsing who the characters are, talking about everything from our relationship to our parents, to our relationship to adolescence, um, you know, just spending a lot of time together building the trust um, talking a lot about the text, um, changing lines if we needed to, uh, rewriting scenes if we needed to, collaborating. It was a very inclusive and really nice collaboration. And they really took ownership of their characters. There's great many examples in the film that I could cite that were thanks to the truth that they brought to the table. Like if you remember the scene where Mimi and Ranka finally fight at the end and she throws the smoothies and then the guards come over and ask if everything is okay. Uh, that's where the scene ends in the script is that Rönke just looks at Mimi in awe or whatever. But they felt that they as friends would immediately run to each other and hug and sort of immediately forgive. And this detail is constantly getting compliments because people say that that's exactly what friendship is like. What real friendship is like is that you don't stop the scene there. You have that hug and you have that forgiveness. That's the kind of truth that they could then bring to the characters. I think it'd have to be a very short question if anyone has one. Totally changing the subject. I was really intrigued by the technical way you that you were filming the ice skating scenes, and I spent the whole time sort of trying to see the joins. And I just wonder if there's anything you can give away um, and explain how you did that. Who did the ice skating? Um, I presume it was a professional skater, but do tell because it was wonderful. It was seamless. Did you see the scenes? No, not at all. I was. <laughs> Desperately trying to find where the joins were. I mean, there were some things I thought maybe, but I'm really interested how you did that because it was wonderful. This was a very low budget film. And so we didn't have any money for 
you know, beautiful visual effects where we could just take the actor's face and put it on a professional skater. So we used this method of hiding it in plain sight, basically. And just like you guessed, there is a stunt, a very good skater on a very high level who does all the pirouettes and jumps. And then Linne Aleino basically rehearsed skating or trained for three months to skate smoothly. That's how long it just takes to look like you can skate, you know. <laughs> I mean, she does some of the simpler movements and she does um, all of the prep for the big jumps, like the lots, you know, there's very specific movements that you need to do believably. And she had a wonderful trainer, very, very determined young woman who who told me, because I asked her like, oh, so I have this actor. She has skated in high school. I mean, she has a background in gymnastics, but she hasn't been on skates for like five years. Can you train her in three months to look like European champion level skater? She was like, no problem. I've got this. And the first thing she said to Linda, you will not be jumping. You will not try a jump because that's when you, that's when you cut your or hurt your ankle. But uh, basically it's a collaboration between uh, cinematographer Jarmo Kiuru making sure that we got the footage that really does match. Finland's best editor Samu Heikkila who put it, the material together and the fact that Linne Elena, the actress, actually really does such a good job that we could cut her together with a top-level skater. And if you do a freeze frame of some of the wide shots, you will see the stunts face, but it's there's motion blur enough, so you don't see that was a great question. It's true. It was a very, very impressive moment. I just want to briefly ask what you're up to next. Obviously, great things are happening for those of us who can see. In terms of your work, what's going on? Well, after my parental leave, <laughs> I'm going hopefully into production with a film that doesn't have an English title yet. Uh, we just got development funds for a film about a woman who, uh, it takes place in 120 years into the past, but she's dealing with similar subject matters and questions as women today. I should have said that the other way. We are still dealing with similar subject matters that she was 120 years ago of not really tr- uh, fitting necessarily into the roles and frames given to her by society. Well, I feel like that's going to be one we definitely want to get you back onto Girls on Films to talk about. Will you please come back? Because I have to say you've been a fantastic guest. Can I have a round of applause, please, for Ali Halepasa? Thank you so much. Thank you to Vertigo. Um, thank you to Heather Archbold, Ellie Hardy, and um, to everyone here at Curzon for having us today. And um, do listen out for the podcast because it will be around on Friday when this film comes out. So please tell your friends if you've enjoyed it. Please spread the word. A film like this really needs your support. So thanks again. You can watch Girls, Girls, Girls in UK cinemas from Friday the 30th of September 2022. Girls on Film is an HLA production brought to you by executive producer Hedda Archbold, audio producer Cam Griff, intern Ellie Hardy and our partners for this episode, Vertigo Releasing. I'm Anna Smith and I was joined by Ali Habasala. Thanks for listening. I came to come. (laughs) Yes, you did. (laughs) 